Well, hey guys, good morning. How are we doing today? Doing well? Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us and spending a little time on your Sunday morning with us. We're grateful for that. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot, just I actually said it earlier, that you know we want to make people feel welcome and comfortable and all that. So if you're visiting, man, a special welcome to you. Please relax and, as just I said, be who you are. Um, I, I actually want to start out a little bit differently than, than maybe what is typical uh, this morning. So as I say, welcome, be comfortable, I actually want to put you in a few scenarios that might feel a little uncomfortable for you. And I just want you to think, so particularly if you sit here this morning and you would identify yourself as a Christian, if you'd say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've trusted him, i said yes to him, I want you to think, as I put you in a few scenarios here, how would you respond? You know, like, what, what would you do? What would you be feeling in these scenarios that we put you in? And, uh, and then how would you react? What would you do? Um, so the first one is um, an, a lady named Mary Samay George. Imagine you were Mary Samay George. This is a picture of her. And so she was a Christian. And uh, in 2014, she traveled to Egypt, to Cairo, Egypt. And if you don't know much about Egypt now, it's not the safest place in the world to be a Christian. There's a lot of uh, persecution that goes on there um, against Christians. And so she chose, she was a Christian, she chose to go over there because she wanted to care for the needs of a particular family that was struggling over there. And uh, it brought her the ultimate sacrifice. And so this is a, this is a quote from um, an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, so somebody that was there. They said, once they saw that she was a Christian, so she had in her car on her rear view mirror, hanging from her rear view mirror, she had a cross. And so that cross identified to some of these folks that she was a Christian. Once they saw that she was a Christian, they jumped on top of the car to the point that the vehicle was no longer visible. So so many people devoured, like literally devoured the car that it was no longer visible. The roof of the car collapsed. And when they realized that she was starting to die, they pulled her out of the car and they started pounding on her and pulling her hair to the point that portions of her hair and her scalp came off. They kept beating her and kicking her and stabbing her with any object or weapon that they could find. And it goes on to say that, they, that she also, in all of the mayhem, was shot and her car was burned up. And so that day, Mary, knowing what could potentially happen, um, she gave her life because she was a Christian. Imagine you were um, one of the 21 men, maybe you saw this on the news a few years ago, this was 2015, so three years ago, uh, one of the 21 men from, uh, that were in Libya that were captured by ISIS soldiers and they were killed, they were beheaded. And I was reading a little bit about that, it's happened February 12th, 2015. Um, they were killed just because, just because they were Christians. And so they actually were also from Egypt and they weren't able to provide for their families there and so they went next door into Libya to try to find some work and while they were in Libya, these ISIS soldiers found out that they were Christians and all of them, all these men were somewhere in their early to mid 20s and uh, so they captured them and they held them for a while and they tortured them. So in the days and weeks leading up to their execution, they tortured them and they promised them that if they would just forsake Jesus, if they would just forsake Christ, then they would let them go, right? None of them did, none of them did. 
And the, the, one of the observers, I guess, said that um, as they were being executed on that beach in Libya, they were singing songs of praise to Jesus. Right? Like, and, and maybe we hear that and we're like, man, I don't even know. I don't even know what to do with that. You know, like that's so foreign to what, like the context that I'm in, to what I'm used to. I don't even know how to process that or handle that. And if that's where you're at, like, I get it. I kind of don't either. Um, but maybe this morning, um, so our scenarios would look a little bit different, right? Uh, maybe this morning, if you're a student, if you're a student this morning, maybe it looks like this for you. You go into school and you, one of your classmates is, uh, she dresses poorly, she uh, uh, doesn't smell very good, she's got acne on her face, and your group of friends is just tearing her down. They're just making fun of her, they're just being, they're bullying her and being harsh to her. Let me ask you this, how does your relationship with Jesus, if you sit here this morning, students, and you say, I'm a Christian, how does your relationship with Jesus cause you to respond in a situation like that, Right? How about this? Maybe, maybe you're older, you're not a student anymore, and you're dating, and maybe you're on your first date, and it's going great, you know, it's clicking, like things are, things are really good, and you're excited, and then somewhere along the way, start talking about religion. Religion comes up, and the person that, that, you're, that you're there with um, says, you know, I, I just kind of think that all religion is basically the same. You know, I don't know why we can't all get along. It all is kind of the same thing, and it's really just what works best for me. Like, how I choose is just what works best for me. It's my preference. If you're in that situation and you're a Christian, how does your relationship with Jesus cause you to respond? Or, or maybe, there's another one that I've heard, maybe um, you're a businessman or a businesswoman and part of your job is they, they make you go uh, you know, out of town somewhere, overseas somewhere. Uh, maybe you go to Amsterdam, and if you know much about Amsterdam, in Amsterdam, about everything's legal. It's a, it's a different world, right? So drugs, prostitution is legal too. And so maybe you're in Amsterdam on a business trip and after work your colleagues say, man, let's go down to the red light district in Amsterdam and let's see the best of what Amsterdam has to offer. Like if you're a Christian, like how does your relationship with Jesus cause you to respond? Can, can I just ask you a real pointed question? And again, just for, if you sit here this morning, we're all at different places, it's cool. But if you sit here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, let me ask you this. What difference does your faith make in your life? In your life? Like if you're honest. So we're here. I love that we're here. I love that we get to do this. Let's be honest. It's pretty comfortable, right? Like nobody's going to look at us and, and, uh, and hurt us for being here. Uh, you don't get made fun of too much these days for being a Christian. Let me ask you, like, when things get harder, you know, if it were to become uh, dangerous to be a Christian, what sort of difference does your relationship with Jesus make? You know, like how committed are you to Jesus? I read a statistic this past week that over the last 10-ish years, I guess it was technically 2005 to 2015, approximately a million people, a million Christians worldwide were killed because of their faith. And, and what the statistics say, what they reveal, is that that's been consistently true over the last couple decades. So somewhere north of 90,000 people a year are being killed, that are Christians, are being killed just because they're Christians. And, and you know, like, let's be honest, we can turn the TV on and 
uh, oftentimes throughout the year, we can see stories of that sort of thing beginning to happen in the United States too. You know, like churches, like people go into churches and kill people just because they have a problem with Jesus or they have a problem with Christians. Like how, like how does your faith respond when you're put in a situation where it becomes dangerous to be a Christian? Or how about when it just becomes unpopular to be a Christian or becomes uncomfortable to be a Christian? I was reading uh, uh, some of the research from the Pew Research Organization. Pew, Barna, Gallup, all of these pollster organizations are finding the same thing. So as they give a survey to, to somebody, the question that asks about religious affiliation um, more and more people are marking. So you have choice. Am I a Christian? Am I a Muslim? Am I a Buddhist? Am I a Hindu? Am I da, 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 da? None. More and more people are marking none. I'm not any of those things. Call them the nuns. The rise of the nuns. It's happening more and more and more and more every year, right? The United States is often described as a post-Christian nation now a post-Christian nation. So we're following the trends. If you know much about what's happening around the world, in Europe, Europe used to be staunchly Christian, right? There was tons of Christians in Europe. Now Europe is a post, far and away, a post-Christian area of the world, right? There's very few Christians in Europe. It sounds strange, but it's true. Canada, I look at Canada and I go, Canada and the United States are not that different. Like geographically, we're close to each other and culturally, you think we're not that different. Canada, Canada is clearly a post-Christian country. I have a friend who um, I talked to this past week who's from here, but he moved up to New Hampshire uh, a couple years ago and he was just telling me, I hadn't talked to him in a while, we were just kind of catching up and he was telling me um, about you know, like what it's like to be a Christian there. And he said, you know, it's crazy you'd think it wouldn't be that different. You know, what they say is it's changing. Northern United States is becoming post-Christian earlier and it's sort of working its way down. So he's in New Hampshire, he's like, it's crazy. He's like, I so seldom come across anybody that says they're a Christian, that would call themselves a Christian, that would ever go to church. It's so rare, he said less than 2% of the population up here goes to church. Like, like, and he's like, and I don't even know how many of the people that go to church are actually Christians. My son is a uh, fifth grader, and his um, public school fifth grade basketball team, all of their games are on Sundays. Like, this is, just, this is just how it is now. So if you want to play basketball at the school, his game is anywhere between, in fact, I think he's at a game right now. His game is anywhere between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., anywhere along that spectrum. And so we're like, this is, this is the new reality. Like, this is the world that we live in. You go to that gym where the games are, there's all kinds of games going on at the same time, and it's packed with people. It's way more crowded than most churches, right? And, in, and I was reading a little bit about, like, church growth in our country right now, and the vast majority of churches are either plateaued, like they're stalled, they're, they're just sort of there, they're not growing or shrinking, or they're in decline. The majority are in decline. And so you think about like what God is doing. It makes me think about what God's doing at Grace Church. And I'm like, this is, like, it's so humbling and it's so rare because that's not what most churches in our country are like. So I, I've heard people say, a lot of people, and I think with the, with the right heart, like, yes, we live in a Christian nation. Can we just be honest about what Christianity like is like in America now? It's changing and it's changed in significant ways. Now there's more and more pressure to not be too committed to the faith. 
Like, yeah, you can still call yourself a Christian, but you also have to look at all of these other religions and all of these other philosophies as equally true and equally valid. And we have this weird, we've developed this weird definition of tolerance. And we're like, to be tolerant, it used to be to be tolerant is to be like, I'm, I'm going to love and I'm going to care for and I'm going to respect and I'm going to live at peace with people that believe differently than me, right? I respect them. I live at peace with them. Now I also have to kind of agree with them. And even more than that, celebrate what they believe and what they do, even when it's in stark contrast to this, even when it's in stark contrast to what Jesus says here. Guys, let me ask you, when, when it becomes unpopular, when it becomes uncool, when it becomes unattractive, polarizing, because you identify as a Christian, which will happen more and more and more every year that goes by, how will you respond in your life? Like, how will you respond? Will you shrink away and go, ah, I just keep my, safe, my faith to myself, or, you know, I just won't talk about that, or they can believe what they want, but, or do we hold on to it and say, no, this is, this is who I am, this is what I believe. So this is, I realize this is like an intense way to start out a sermon here, so forgive me for that, but this is actually like what we're talking about today. We're, so we've been in this series um, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, and today we're in Daniel chapter 3. And in chapter 3, it is a fascinating chapter about these three young men who became very, very unpopular and very unattractive and polarizing for their faith because they were unwilling to compromise. Because the prevailing government at the time said, do this, be this way. And they said, nope, I'm not going to do it, no matter what the cost even if it means my death. And so here's what I want to challenge you. As we dig into it, we're going to jump into it in a second. As we dig into it, I want you to ask the question, like, how unwilling are you in your life to compromise the core things about our faith, about Christianity, about what Jesus says? Like, as you look at these three young men and their decisions to not compromise the things that are big deals in the faith, like, think about, apply that to your life. How unwilling are you to not compromise when things will get tough? Okay, so let's look at it. So go, grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. You could open up the app. It's in there as well. Daniel's in the Old Testament about two-thirds of the way through our Bible. So let me just quickly, I'm not going to go back through all of the setting of Daniel um, with, that I did in the previous weeks, but let me just give you a, a two minutes of, of background, like context here. So the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon, right? Babylon is present-day Iraq, and Babylon's like the world power at the time. And so they are literally, they're brutal, and they're conquering everybody. And the king of Babylon is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who is a brutal, brutal guy as well. And so the way that they did things, they would go in, and this is what happened with Israel. They conquered Israel, and they killed a lot of people, but the best people, they sort of cherry-picked the best people, the smartest, the sharpest, the best-looking, they would take them, and they would bring them over. They'd bring them into captivity, into Babylon. Babylon. And so that's what happens to this guy named Daniel. Daniel and three friends were young men at the time, 14, 15 years old, and they're captured and they're brought over with the purpose of turning them into Babylonians. We're going to turn you into a Babylonian wise man who will one day help lead this nation. That's kind of what they did. And so as Daniel uh, and his three friends are over there, they have a decision to make. In fact, they have lots of decisions to make. And we see this all throughout the book of Daniel. Do they hold to their convictions on things that are a big deal? This is a big deal to God. I'm going to hold to my conviction no matter what. Or do they compromise things that aren't a big deal? 
things that are neither right nor wrong, they're just different. Do they compromise? And they say, that's okay. What we're going to see today, they have to make the decision. We see that all throughout the book of Daniel. What we're going to see today is an example where they hold to their convictions because following what the Babylonians tell them to do would be choosing against God. It would be deliberately disobeying and forsaking God. And so what they do is they hold to their faith knowing it could cost them their lives. And then it actually, they're sentenced to death, but God saves them. Powerful, powerful story. So let's look at it. So this is Daniel uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the the dedication of the image that he set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, there's all kinds of lists in this chapter, by the way, bear with me, okay? The horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, let's stop right there. So if, uh, if you were here last week, if you remember from last week, chapter two ended in kind of an interesting way. So chapter two was all about how this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had this dream that like freaked him out. And he needed to find out what this dream actually meant. And so he brought in all of his wise men and he said, we're not going to screw around. You got to tell me what this dream meant. But here's how I know that what you're telling me is the truth. Tell me what the dream was first and then tell me what it meant. And they're like, nobody could do that. You're crazy, right? Well, Daniel's the one that could do that because God comes to Daniel in his dream and he tells him what Nebuchadnezzar dreams, right? And then he tells him what that dream means. And so Daniel gives that to Nebuchadnezzar. It results, the end of chapter two results in Nebuchadnezzar kind of giving glory to God. This is what it says. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So the end of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's like, wow, your God is the God of gods, right? He kind of worships God. Well, it doesn't last, right? It doesn't last. In fact, we'll see how things in in chapter three is very similar, and it as well doesn't last. Daniel, interestingly, so we're in the book of Daniel, Daniel is not even mentioned in this chapter. And we don't know why. We don't know, you know exactly what's happened. It's easy to look at that and assume, well, maybe Daniel knelt down and he wasn't one of the guys that was getting in trouble. But I don't think we should assume that, okay? And so what, what theologians think, maybe Daniel was away on a mission, you know? Maybe he had some other work that he was doing for the kingdom. Or maybe Daniel at that point was like the second most important person under the king in Babylon. And so maybe the people that like come and tell on the others don't want to do it with Daniel. We don't know, but we know that Daniel's not even in this chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar builds this big statue and it's unclear exactly what it's an image of. It might be an image of himself. 
you know, like his, his own likeness. It might be an image of one of their gods, Marduk or Naboo. We don't know what it's an image of, but it's an idol. It's an image of gold of something, and it's huge. So it, uh, this story gives us in cubits. None of us know what a cubit is, right? Smart people, the theologians know what a cubit is. It's 90 feet high, Nine, like 90 foot high gold statue, nine feet wide. So it's huge. It's substantial. And so he calls all of his, all of his cronies, all of his leaders, right? The, the governors, the satraps, the prefects, all of those guys to come in and be a part of this dedication ceremony for this statue. And at the dedication ceremony, he says, whenever you hear the sound of the music, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you immediately got to stop whatever it is that you're doing, and you got to bow down, and you got to worship this statue, this image of gold, right? And if you don't, death. You're thrown into a fiery furnace. Think about, think, think uh, remember when you're a kid and you're in school and you make, like, you have clay and you make pottery? I, I actually still have, like, this, I think I was in first grade, this old, it was a dinosaur, but it looks like a giraffe with polka dots on it that I made. But, but you take it and you make it, and then the teacher puts it in a kiln, right? And it bakes it and it makes it hard. This fiery furnace, kind of imagine a big kiln, okay, that gets really, really hot, this big hot box. And so if you don't do what they say to do, you're going to be thrown into this big hot box. And apparently, all of them, when they hear the music play, they do what they're supposed to do. They bow down, right? Almost all of them. Look at verse uh, 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward, uh, or Chaldeans came forward, and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, <laughs> lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. I, I read that and I kind of chuckle a little bit. And they're like, oh, 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 king, king, king. You remember how you said that like whenever we hear the music, we got to stop whatever it is that we're doing and we got to bow down and we got to worship this, this beautiful, that statue you made is so beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Well, did you know that you got some Jewish boy, you know those Jewish boys that you promoted faster than the rest of us? Did you know that they don't bow down when you do this? Sounds like my eight-year-old daughter, right? Like, this is what my daughter does. I'll tell my kids, go clean your room, and she'll come down. She'll be like, Dad, you remember how you said we should clean our room? Well, I was up cleaning my room, and Luke was playing Xbox, right? Like, this is what this guy, this guy sounds like, right? So he kind of tells on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how do you think the king is going to respond to this, to these guys disobeying his direct command? Kind and gracious, I'm sure, right? No, look at verse 13. Furious with rage... Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace." then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he'll deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you set up. Man, like that is, that is some serious courage, right? Like they know the result of non-compliance, of not doing what the king says. That question I asked you earlier, what difference does your faith make in your life? Man, for these three guys, their faith in God made a huge difference in their lives. They were willing to give their lives for their faith. Let me, let me ask you, why do you think it was such a big deal to them to not do what the king commanded them to do? Like, why couldn't they just, you know, as a courtesy, bow down and, you know, worship this image? Like, why was that such a big deal for them? Well, do you guys remember the Ten Commandments? Right? You know the Ten Commandments? So these are, these are ten things that God gives to Moses thousands of years ago for the Jews, really for all of us, that kind of reveal his heart for us and his expectations for our lives. So do you remember what the first commandment is? Yeah? Here it is. Ready? We'll put it on the screen. You shall have no other gods before me. Very first commandment. Very first thing that God says. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what the second commandment is? They're actually related to each other. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Pretty clear, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as good Jewish boys, would have absolutely known what the Ten Commandments were, absolutely known God's heart in this. Sometimes it's tough for us to know like right and wrong in situations, you know, like sometimes it's hard to determine that what's okay, what's not okay. This is not one of those situations. Like God was absolutely crystal clear. Essentially what he's saying is I am not okay with you guys worshiping me and then worshiping other gods as well. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with you worshiping me and anyone else or anything else. It's me and me alone or you don't worship me. That's essentially what the first two commandments are all about. God is crystal clear here. And what Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do is 100% against what their God has asked them to do. And so their response is, it, man, it's so interesting to me. Clearly they believed that God could save them from Nebuchadnezzar's death sentence, right? Like they knew that he could do that, but they didn't assume that he would. They knew he could, but they didn't assume that he would. And here's the thing that's so interesting about it. To them, it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether God was gonna save them or not. They were going to trust him if he saved them and their life on earth continued, but they were also going to trust him if he didn't save them and their life on earth didn't continue, but their eternal life continued forever. They didn't know what God would do, but they trusted him. You know what it reminds me of? Later, um, I don't know, 600-ish years later in the New Testament, the guy that wrote most of our New Testament, Apostle Paul, he writes this in uh, Philippians chapter one, it reminded me of this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, for me 
to live is to be like Jesus. He lived and he, he had purpose, he had mission. And, and if God allows me to live, I wanna live like Christ. If I die, if he doesn't allow me to live, even better, it's even better. And so I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I look at Paul, and I'm like, clearly these are guys that were, that were not too terribly uh, attached to their life here on earth, right? Because they knew that there was a life to come. And it, may, it makes me think of this. Here's a question for you to think about. What am I more in love with? My life on earth today or my life to come with Jesus in paradise for eternity? I think about that question. I don't want to spend too much time, but think about that question. Because the way that we answer that question really determines how we live our lives. If I'm more focused on my life here and now today, I'm gonna live my life a certain way. If I'm more focused on this, you better believe I'm gonna do everything I can to have a really awesome life, right? That's full and fun and, and significant and all that sort of stuff. If I'm living for the future, for the life to come, it's gonna cause me to live differently today because this life isn't all that there is, right? These are guys that knew that this life wasn't all that there is. That strikes me. Look at, look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. So they're like, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. And no matter what happens, we're not going to follow what you say. So he's furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, hold on. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors, they had to see what was happening. They crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Man, doesn't that just get you jacked? Like, I read that, I like, I... <laughs> I love this story. I love this history. You know, let me say this too. I was, in in uh, my preparation this week, I was reading, one of the guys that I was reading talked about, he referred to this old Babylonian document that, um, that Nebuchadnezzar had written where he talks about this statue. So like he, in, in this old ancient Babylonian document, he talks about the statue, he actually kind of writes it to future kings of Babylon. He says, don't tear down this statue. This is a big deal, right? He doesn't say anything about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this ancient document, kind of, kind of making him look foolish. But you wouldn't expect that in an old Babylonian history document, right? But I tell you that because this stuff is real. You know, it's real. This isn't a story that was made up to teach us a lesson. It really happened. Nebuchadnezzar really did this. 
God really did this. I remember when I was a kid, like my parents would read me Bible stories. I would go to church and I would learn about the Bible, but it didn't, it just didn't make a big difference in my life because I kind of, I don't know if I didn't believe it or I just didn't really care at the time, right? But when you read it through the eyes of faith, the same exact story, when you read it through the eyes of faith and you're like, this is real, this happened. God did this. It changes everything. It fundamentally changes what we get out of it. And so God does something supernatural here, right? Some theologians look at that, that fiery furnace that they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, and they said um, it, it was probably the same furnace that they fashioned the gold statue in which is just kind of interesting. This same furnace that was so hot when the guards dropped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into it, it killed them, but it didn't harm these three boys. In fact, I think this is interesting. I don't know if you caught this or not. So it, they don't smell like smoke. It doesn't harm them in any way. And yet somehow they go in and they're bound, you know, with chains or ropes or something like that. It burns those off right? Because they're walking around freely, unharmed in there. It burns those off, but it doesn't hurt them at all. They don't even smell like smoke. Like, can you imagine what that experience would have been like? You know, if you were there, if you were seeing this, you know, it says the, you know, the the, uh, governors and royal advisors and satraps and prefects, they see all this and it's like they crowd around them. They're like, what just happened? You know, imagine what those boys were feeling. And then mysteriously, like they're inside this fiery furnace, all of a sudden there's a fourth person that appears in there. And it's like, whoa, who is that? You know, Christians throughout the centuries have like wondered who in the world is that? And so some think that, and this is interesting, some think that it was uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. So before Jesus was, was born to Mary and Joseph, before he came flesh, he has always been God the Son. And so they look at this and they go, well, did you hear what uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said? He described him as the son of the gods. There's a fourth person in there that looks like the son of the gods. And as Christians, we look at that and we're like, son of the gods? That sounds like God the Son. I wonder if that was Jesus. And it could be. Like it could be the pre-incarnate Jesus. We don't know. I, I tend to think that's a little bit of a stretch I tend to think that's not where the, what the text actually leads us to. That expression, son of the gods. So, like the, so Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheistic pagan, right? That was an expression that meant something like a divine being. I see a son of the gods. I see a divine being. And later in, uh, we, we stopped a little bit short of this. In verse 28, he actually refers to that fourth person in there as an angel. And so I don't know if it was, you know, Jesus or if it was an angel Um, the point is the same either way. God is with them in the fire, right? Nebuchadnezzar's like, listen, who's gonna be able to, there's no God in this world that's gonna be able to save you if I throw you in the fire, except your God, except the, the one true God, the God of the universe. He protects them from harm. And then the chapter ends, similar to last week, again, the chapter ends with, uh, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar going, wow, your God is the God of gods. He's amazing. Da, 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 da. He promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He kind of gives glory to God. But again, it's something that doesn't last. 
So, so let's stop right there, and I want to talk about this a little bit, because there is so much in this chapter that we could pull from. Again, I really want to challenge, I want to encourage you to read through this ahead of time. It's been cool having some conversations with some of you that are like, man, I read through the chapter, I'm excited to talk about it, you know. Read, read chapter four next week, because I think when we give it a little more time, God just stirs something inside of us. And so the first thing, like when I, when I read this, and maybe you could get this by my excitement with it, I'm like inspired by it. You know, like I read this and I think this challenges me in my commitment to God. I read it and I think, man, this is right. Like this is what God wants from us. The way that they live, this is what God wants from us. Unbridled trust, commitment, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's unpopular, even when it's dangerous. Because ultimately this is God's world. God is in control of everything and he protects those that love him. I read these three guys and what they do, I'm like, I'm inspired by that. I wanna be that way. I wanna have that kind of faith. That's the first thing I take. The second thing I take away from this is I, I just appreciate these three young men's view of God. Here's what, here's what I think they knew. They knew that God has freedom in his faithfulness. God has freedom in his faithfulness. And here's what I mean by that. They didn't know if he was gonna save them from dying, right? They didn't know it, they knew he could, but they didn't know if he would. They didn't know if that was God's plan for them, and they were okay with that. It did not really matter to them. If they lived, great, they're gonna live faithfully to God. If they didn't, even better. They were gonna live faithfully to God the time that they have here, and then they were gonna spend eternity with him. They trusted God's faithfulness, and they believed that there is a life to come. And I just appreciate that, like that sober view of God, because he does not always save in this life. I know that, and I'll bet you guys know that too. We can be honest about that. Sometimes we pray for things and we beg God for something to change or something to happen or someone to be healed or whatever. And he says, no, it doesn't happen. And then we can get, like, we can get weird with that and we can think like it's our fault or something. Like maybe I didn't pray enough. You know, maybe I didn't have strong enough faith in this. Or we could blame God and we can go, maybe he just didn't hear me or maybe he didn't care. Guys, sometimes things happen because it wasn't God's will to happen the other way. It wasn't God's will to make it happen the way that we want it to happen. He's free to express his faithfulness in the manner in which he desires. And many times we don't understand why. We have questions that we don't have answers to. And that's okay, because God is free. God can do as he pleases. He doesn't have to do as I please. It's so important for us to get. He can do as he pleases because he's God and I'm not. But here's what I can rest in. I can rest in this. So he can do whatever he wants, but I know he loves me, right? I know that he's good, that he's got a plan, that he's trustworthy, and that he loves me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that too. They didn't know what God was gonna do, but they knew he's good, they knew he had a plan, they knew he's trustworthy, and they knew that they were loved by him. That jumps out to me, God has freedom and his faithfulness. Here's the second thing, like-minded friends are really important. Like-minded friends are really important. So friends are important, period. We shouldn't just hang out with people that are like-minded with us, that doesn't, that's not helpful in our lives. 
But like-minded friends are really important for us to have. Apply that to like the Christian concept. Christian community is really important. Here's one thing. Here's a question that I have when I read this. I read this and, and I don't know, this is how my mind thinks. I think, I wonder if they would have had the courage to do what they did if they were alone. I wonder if they would have had the courage to do what they did if they didn't have each other. And, and I don't know, you know? I don't know, because trusting and holding on to your, onto your convictions and having courage to walk through hard things, through hard times, is tough when you're alone because you don't have support, you know? You stumble and you don't have anybody to help you up. You get discouraged and you don't have somebody, anybody to encourage you. Being alone is really, really tough. And here's what I know. That's exactly how some of you are living. You're living alone. Like you're trying to do this alone. And, and guys, we could be the worst with this. My goodness. Like we're so, oh, I'm strong. I could do it by myself. I don't need other people. People just get in the way. They drive me crazy. <laughs> it's not how God made us. It's not how he made us. We need other people. That's, how, that's why the church is important. You know, it's why we do groups here. We were talking about Shackle for Grace group. We have all kinds of groups. It's a women's Bible study. We don't do it because we look at you and we go, you must not have enough going on in your life. <laughs> we need to make it a little busier and then we're gonna guilt you into doing it so that you feel better. Like that's not at all the goal. <laughs> the goal. The goal is that we experience relationships with each other because we need those relationships. Marcia and I, my wife and I, like we're not, I'm not in a group because I have a boss who's saying, you need to do this, you need to be in a group. I don't have that. I'm not in a group because I think I, if I'm asking you to do it, I should probably be an example and do it too. We're in a group because we need it. We need it. Like we need friends. We need people that we could walk through life with, that we could be honest with, that we could open up to, that open up to us. It's how God made us. He didn't make us to be alone. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're alone, you're trying to walk with Jesus alone, it's not gonna go well for you. You're gonna stumble. And I would challenge you to consider some, like get into a group or some sort of community. We'd love to help you with that. The, the last thing that I'll say, that, that as I read this, it just it grabs my heart with this, is that God really takes care of those that trust him. God takes care of those that trust him. Growing up, I loved, I, I was like one of those weird kids. I loved math. Like math always just made sense to me, you know, like logical in my thinking. And, and, you know, with math, you learn a rule and then you could apply it in every situation. The numbers change, you know, but, but you learn the rule and then it's easy to just apply it in all those situations. It's consistently true, right? God is the same way. He's consistently true. He's consistently the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The things that he said in the past hold true for the present and they hold true for the future. And the way that God took care of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 2,600 years ago is a rule that applies to us today as well. He will take care of us. He'll take care of you. When you trust him, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. He takes care of those that trust him. It's a rule that was true then and it's true now. I look at these three guys and I think, man, I want to have that kind of faith, you know? Like I want to have the kind of faith, Lord, I hope, I hope none of us are ever at a point where we have to choose between 
life and forsaking Jesus and death. I hope we're never at that point. But man, if I am at that point, I want to have no doubt who I would choose. I want to have the faith that this life is not all that there is. And God is free in his faithfulness. If he chooses to save me, he saves me. If he doesn't, even better. I look at these guys like, that's the kind of faith that I want. And I want to challenge you. I hope you feel the same. This morning, if you sit here and you're like, I don't, I want it, but I don't have that. It's not hard. Here's how it starts. You say yes to Jesus. Like you just trust him. You lay it out. He's knocking. We've talked about this the last few weeks. He's knocking at our door. Do we open it and do we invite him in and trust him? Or do we keep the door shut? Like we could all have the kind of faith that, sh- that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when we invite Jesus in, we say yes to him and we trust him. And I want to say this. I'll, I'll end with this. Um, you'll, you'll see in the program in the next few weeks, we're going to do a baptism coming up here, which I'm so excited about. In about a month, uh, toward the end of February. And I, just, I guess I just want to challenge you. Maybe you sit here this morning and uh, you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe you've never been baptized, or you were baptized maybe as a child before you could make a decision if you wanted to follow Jesus or not. I'd really encourage you, if you never, if that, if that defines you and you love Jesus, man, consider being baptized, standing up. It's, it's just beautiful to stand up in front of other people and say, I'm with him, and I don't care who knows about it. I'm good with that. I'm his. I'm his. 